Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Independent Life Podcast. Dr. Jacob Atem. He has changed my life in so many ways, and it is just a complete honor to have him back on the Independent Life for a second interview. Please check out his first interview. We have it here in the show notes so that you can understand who this amazing person is. Jacob came to the United States as a lost boy fleeing the Southern Sudan conflict, civil war, where millions were killed, came here to the United States and made some incredible choices that allowed him to get his PhD, to start a nonprofit organization. And Jacob and I happened to run into each other in February of 2022. It'd been about a year, a couple of years, maybe even uh, before the pandemic, maybe that we had really seen each other in person and really had communicated with one another in a meaningful way. And by chance, I don't think it was a coincidence, but we ran into each other in that exchange. We said, hey, let's catch up and this, that, and the other and offered an opportunity. We were at the time looking, we being the Independent Living Network, we're looking for a person to fulfill a position that had really unique qualifications. So the Independent Living Network um, was collaborating with Florida's Department of Corrections to run a pilot program for inmates who are incarcerated with disabilities. Um, we had just recently created a curriculum, thank, thanks to Lindsay Telg. She also was a, a person that we had an interview with here on the podcast, but she created this very innovative curriculum for inmates with disabilities to put them in a position to when they got out of prison, to be employed, but even more importantly, to not go back to prison. A very innovative curriculum that was based on storytelling, understanding their own stories and being able to frame it and tell it in a very positive way that could lead to more positive outcomes for them in the future, how to gain and uh, access and utilize resources to prevent any kind of recidivism that's out there. We had this amazing curriculum in hand. We had this opportunity from the Florida Department of Corrections to go into three prisons to deliver a five-week curriculum at each prison, uh, 15 weeks, 100 hours a pop, so 300 hours with dozens of inmates. And we were looking for somebody that could relate to prisoners, that knew what independent living was, and that could really help to connect with them. And this was a very unique position to fill. And in running into Jacob and ta talking about his availability, um, it just so happened to be that he was the person to fill this. Now, we have just uh, completed those three pilots at those prisons. So we just went through this experience of uh, delivering this very unique course to inmates. And so on the podcast today, Jacob and I really debrief on his experiences in the prison, what he learned in his experiences with, with, with these inmates, what these inmates are all about, and what life will be like for them once they get out, and what Jacob learned himself going through this experience. He really gives a lot of insights here, and I really appreciate the, the things that he had to say about having um, respect, not judging, having empathy, forgiveness, 
he really goes in deep on those kind of things that I think all of us would need to exercise if we don't necessarily uh, can maybe understand or relate to why it might be important for us to really pay attention to uh, knowing what inmates may be going through, especially those with disabilities and what life will be like for them after prison and understanding why it's this uh, humanitarian thing to do to make sure that we provide them the resources necessary for them to succeed. And if not understanding the humanitarian aspects of why this is important, it just makes economic sense for our society. So I bring you Dr. Jacob Atem. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Independent Life Podcast. I'm beaming with excitement today because I get to be here with my dear friend, Jacob Atem. How are you doing today? Good. Doing great, Tony. Thank you. It's good to be back for the second time to the podcast. Yeah, we, we had a great time the first time, and we're going to link up those episodes into the show notes. There are two episodes we recorded in one sitting, but you are so fascinating and your life story is uh, a lot there. So we broke it up into two episodes. I highly, 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 highly encourage people to go check those out if they have not to get your background, your story, who you are. It's super rich, man. Uh, but in case some listeners haven't, so we can maybe put the uh, this episode into context. If you don't mind, maybe just talk a little bit about yourself who Jacob Atem is. Yes, my name is uh, Dr. Jacob Atem, originally from uh, Sudan and um, now currently known as South Sudan. Uh, we got independent in uh, 2011 and I'm also known as one of the lost boys of Sudan. And so in a nutshell, uh, there was a terrible conflict in the Sudan that was erupted that has killed uh, parents, relatives, about 2.5 million people. And we wondered throughout the IDP camp, which is internally displaced camps to different neighboring countries. We were so fortunate to be resettled in the United States by the United States government in the early 2000s to up to early 2004 or five there, but uh, that program was cut short, unfortunately, due to the conflict of September 11. Uh, but there are about 3,889 lost boys and lost girls that were resettled in the United States as a refugee. So me personally, I was uh, resettled in Michigan under uh, Lutheran Social Services of Michigan. And what does that mean? There are two groups when the lost boys were resettled here. One, if you are under the age of 18, they call it unaccompanied minor. And that means you will be placed under a foster care until you are 18 years old. And then after then you become independent living, right? You live by yourself. But there are those who came, uh, who were 18 and above, those called, they are called majors. And that means they come here find a job, you have three months of an assistant from the government, but then after three months, you have to figure out uh, how to get a job. 
and also how to pay for the airplane ticket that the United States government brought you from Africa and then welcome to America. And so by virtue, I couldn't believe, I, I, my fellow lost boy and I, we've been here now over 20 years already. And in the course of 20 years, of course, it's a new beginning for me personally. First time focusing on formal education, I was behind. Uh, I call myself a, a self uh, learner, but a, a slow learner and was fortunate to focus. And, you know, after many years of missing out from formal education, I was able to graduate with my high school diploma in Michigan. Uh, never thought that I would go to college, uh, but I went to a small Christian school called Spring Harbor University. And I majored in biology and play soccer to have a scholarship to, for my bachelor's. Then I co-found an organization called Southern Sudan Healthcare Organization, which we, we build a health clinic in South Sudan and we are providing health services uh, to the vulnerable people over 100,000. That was 14 years ago. But then I went on and studied my master's in public health at Michigan State. And I was fortunate to come and did my PhD at UF where I actually met Tony. Over the course of years, we become very good colleague and we keep in touch. But um, in general, my life, I'm a public health practitioner, a humanitarian worker. Until Tony, it was a few, I would say it, uh, it was around February of last year when you approached me and said there's an opportunity for possibility of teaching uh, a course in uh, uh, in prison. And you were like, do you have time? And I'm like, sure. But at that time, I had to take a, a medical mission trip to South Sudan for my organization. And that was the beginning of what we're going to talk today, the genesis of the course. We call it ERA, Employment uh, Readiness Advancement. Uh, that's the name of the course, uh, which we will get, get there. But I remember that day, uh, you approached me and uh, Center for Independent Living and I have been been working as an independent contractor to teach ERA, which today I'm so excited uh, to really uh, share my personal experience teaching this course. So basically, this course is was de designed to be taught in a, in a prison system to focus more specifically with people with disabilities, uh, different types of disabilities. But the course itself goes, <clears throat> goes beyond that. Uh, we started out, there's a five weeks, it's a five week course. And uh, the first one, uh, one or two weeks is heavy and focus on sharing your story. And someone may ask, what is sharing your story has to do with job search or work. But let me tell you, it's very important. It's part of the healing me personally, as you will see in podcasts uh, one and two. And as I just kind of summarize the importance of, of a story, it doesn't matter uh, whether you're in prison or you're outside of prison, there is an importance of why we share story. 
So we, the course started out sharing stories. Can I can I uh, just pause right there, uh, Jacob? I want to underscore that importance of sharing the story and your story in particular, uh, which I encourage people to listen to those those episodes if they have not already. But your journey um, before you came to the United States in uh, Sudan is so compelling, and you face so many challenges physically to survive, you know, psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, um, so much there. And then your story, once you got here to the United States, you know, about the, all the different things that you, you had to learn a new language, you know, going to school, overcoming stigma yourself and other forms of discrimination to, to really pull yourself up to the highest levels of academia. And then to, to, found a nonprofit organization back in Southern Sudan, which you continue to operate uh, and you continue to go back to. Um, the, and the story, this living story that continues to unfold, that is Jacob Atem, is just so powerful. And, and, and so your journey and your story that you continue to live, I find made you the best candidate for the role that we were looking for. So um, Centers for Independent Living and the Florida Department of Corrections went into a contract to pilot test three pilots, three different prisons, uh, a program, like you said, it was ERA for inmates with disabilities. And it was a five week program, 100 hours. So you spent 15 weeks in the prisons, you know, over 300 hours working with, you know, scores of inmates and, and really trying to empower them in so many different ways. And your story, your journey, and your knowledge in public health made you the best fit for this uniquely position to go into prisons and to connect with inmates, you know, and relate to them. And then to, to do so in a way that's going to empower them to better understand their story and articulate it. I couldn't think of a better person and I'm so glad we have you to do it. So I just wanted to pause there as a point of order, like you, your story in and of itself and who you are and the journey you continue to be on made you the best candidate that we, you know, as a network um, people uh, could identify to, to have this position and to be so suited into it. So yeah, go on and talk to us then about the, the power of storytelling. And, you know, that was part of this curriculum here for inmates and what that's all about and why it was important to have storytelling being such a key component of this curriculum that was about employment. Well, thank you, Tony, for uh, trusting me to do the job. It is indeed uh, 15 weeks. I just completed, but uh, it's such an honor to work with you and uh, Center for Independent Living folks in Tallahassee and also just believing it is a very unique curriculum that we, it's, it has never been done before. And so let me just say, the first prison that I went to, okay, the first course, each of them I have I have taught 15 weeks. So that means one prison that I started with, okay, and then I I provide another five weeks course, okay, if that makes sense, in one prison. So let me start with the first time. We, all of us before going to prison, we, let's agree that each of us are biased in our own ways. We don't know what to expect. 
each of us has an assumption about what prison is and what prison like and what it should be, whether we've been there before or not, okay? I had a little experience back in the day, I would go to prison to do a prison ministry. So I know a little bit, but not too much, right? So, but it's during COVID, right? There's a lot of uncertainty. So there's a lot of question about going to prison and what do you think? And, but one thing motivating me is I knew right away is a unique man for me for this course because of the tribulation that I went through. I try to see it from a different perspective. So just to say going to prison of itself, there was a lot of assumption on my part. Some may be right and some may be not right, okay? Okay, so the first prison I went to, it was something new, it was about 10 students, okay? And like I said, the course is, is really divided into storytelling, telling about your criminal history, uh, providing resources, conducting resume, etiquettes. And we, at the end of the day, the product is to have a portfolio. The portfolio that uh, just like us who want to go to job search, right? You have your resume, you have your cover letter, you have your references, you have adequate ways to communicate in a professional language, right? So my first experience, it was a bit weird. And the reason is weird is people are like, you are coming here for a job and why are you talking about your story? It took a while for them to realize, uh, Tony, the power, because we men, most of them were men that I was, uh, my, most of my students were men. If you guys know men, we we don't open up. We, it take a while to warm up, to really open up, to be vulnerable, because what, why? We are fearing to share. So you can imagine even us outside of free world, Tony, you and I, we just don't go and talk about our personal thing that are depressing in our life. So you could imagine how hard it was for me. My goal was to just break on ice, to just let them be loose. And how do you make them to share their story? And some of the story are really dark, right? So the strategy I did is I made myself vulnerable by sharing my testimony of the good and the bad thing I went through from Africa to here and why I am where I am today. It took us a while, but they opened up. Just to give you a few examples. Once they know, believe it or not, don't assume that these students are in prison. They don't know the world, what's going on. When I mentioned I am one of the lost boys of Sudan, they went back and researched it, and they came back, Tony. And they fact-checked you. <laughs> they came back, and I was just going to give you a few examples from, from the first class in prison. They came back and this guy has, this student has been in prison for 45 years, okay? And the next day he was bawling. He was crying so hard. And I'm like, what have I said that made, made him so upset? So I asked him, how can I help you? What did I do wrong? He said, no, there's nothing you do wrong. I went and did research on on the Lost Boys of Sudan. And I have watched the machine gun preacher, which happened in Sudan. And he said, the reason I'm crying, Jacob, is I am in prison here because of my own choice, because of my making. 
he was saying he was, you know, traveling, trafficking drugs across the United States. And he said he do, did that on his behalf of because his, his dad says so. He said, that's me making a choice. And when he compared that to my life, I didn't have a choice but to walk. I was forced. I was orphaned at age seven. I become vulnerable. She, he said, I had a choice to make. You can see the comparison and the impact that I have made. And I, now he's sharing his struggle. I'm sharing my struggle. Another student who was saying, look, Jacob, while you were in the jungle of woods and all this, I was in a concrete jungle. What does that mean, concrete jungle? It made me puzzle. Concrete jungle. He said, listen, Jacob, I was in a hood. There's nothing. It's desert. I don't have hope. And I commit crime because I didn't have anybody to protect me to say stop. So that's just at the end of the day, they open up and they share more and more and be resilient. But the more of the story, why we share a story is, I told them, imagine most of them are averaging 40 plus in prison. So it doesn't matter when, when somebody's gone for a while, each of us said, you know, Tony, if you're gone now for 40 years and you're my friend, I ran into you 40 years later. I would say, hey, Tony, how you been? That question alone, it's pressure you to share, forget about workplace, right? And that's what I say. You don't have to share in a negative way. You share your story when it is relevant, right? When it is relevant to family members, to network, when it is relevant at the workplace. So they became comfortable and start sharing. And that was incredible. Let me ask you there, hold that, hold that thought. I think like a good uh, point of order here would be to, if you could describe what these inmates with disabilities are like, and I know every one of them are their individuals. So yeah. you can imagine like a lot of people have never gone into prison, perhaps listening to this, let alone know what a person that's been in prison for a long time who has a disability is like. And you've got them to a place where they were, um, able to open up to you and be authentic, you know, and, and let down their guard and everything else like them. Um, how would you describe the people that you work with overall? So the focus of the curriculum, uh, half of it is, is people with disabilities. As we know, American Disability Act is be able to know your right. And when I ask them, what do you think of disability mean to you? Some of them say it is negative because it's somehow always um, stigmatized. It is always associated with negative feeling. Mm -hmm. But the definition is we have different type of disabilities. For example, some students have low vision. Some people actually, some, some students only read lips. So I have to speak slowly. <clears throat> In the first class, one student was deaf and it freaked me out. Yes, why? You and I, Tony, are used to, I, I'm used to a traditional schooling that, you know, everybody's not deaf. I'm just talking, right? Now I'm like, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? How am I going to communicate? But here's the beauty of this class. It's all about access and accommodation. Guess what? I ended up, Center for Independent Living, provide me with the best interpreter. Actually, a lot, about three of them. 
guess what? There was no difference between teaching a student who is not deaf and this deaf student. There's nothing. I communicate through the interpreters and the interpreters get it. That is something that, like I said, we people in the world, because what do we do sometimes? Let's be honest. We say, okay, we only put deaf people to deaf people. We only put legally blind people to legally blind. We only put uh, slow learners. When we start segregating, it's not good. But we accommodation was a big thing because I could relate to them. I came here, I'm a slow learner. That's some people have HDHD. In fact, half of my class were amputee. I didn't know this. And just let me give you an example. And, and the important what we talked about is let your disability be known. Do not be ashamed of your disability. Your disability is not inability. It doesn't mean. And once you let people know, I told the student, your disability, it is a law. We as a society ought to accommodate, right? Whatever the disability they have. And for example, just practical accommodation start within my class before even they come to the society. So half of my students were amputee and they didn't, they didn't show me, they were walking fine. I didn't know, but one student would just get up, Tony, every five minutes. And I'm like, what is it until one day he took out one of his legs and I realized he was um, with amputee. And I'm like, oh, that is an accommodation. I said, thank you for letting me know. Because why, as a teacher, if he get up every five minutes, guess what he's doing? He's stretching his leg so he doesn't stay. But if I didn't know, I would thought that the student is disrespectful to me. That is a one good example to know to have an accommodation. If they come here at work, and let's say the same amputee uh, don't tell his job that he, the same thing that, hey, if you see me take a, a quicker break, it's not the fact that I don't like working. I have this issue here, and that is reasonable accommodation, right? And so accommodation, I have several different types of disabilities, like I say, from low vision to amputee to deaf to legally blind to attention deficit uh, disorder. There was several, several different types of disability. But here's the beauty of it. They are all my students. I have to accommodate them the same way that we would have to accommodate at workplace. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? It makes sense. So in describing the students, A, they're all men or they're predominantly all men and uh, not eager uh, to open up until you were able to you know, share a bit about your story, be vulnerable. And then they got to a place of opening up. Two, that you, they represented nearly all the different types of disabilities that were out there. There's many different forms of disabilities. And, and in this course, throughout these you know, three different five week, 100 hour each uh, experiences, you hit upon a wide variety of disabilities which um, you know, necessitated making sure that we had all the appropriate accommodations uh, needed so that they had equal access uh, to the curriculum. Anything else about this group and its characteristics that jump out at you to, so to help people that might not understand what an inmate with a disability uh, looks like? 
Yeah, so like I said, those were some few uh, experiences from the first, first cohort. And one of the accommodation is to have a laptop and be able to, to, to print their portfolio, which is resume, cover letter, references, and their storytelling. Well, the first group, we had challenges of uh, printing out everything, but we were able to do cover letter. And uh, uh, actually, no, we were unable to get access to the computer to work on the refer uh, reference and cover letter and resume. So we, we did it in the book and we, we still, the mission was accomplished, but it was not sufficient enough, but this is the beginning, right? We, we improved from there on the second class, which I did in another prison uh, was much better. And it's a lot of things here. It was a great teamwork. I want to emphasize, it's not just me. By the time me and my student get into our classroom, we were typically in a BP, they call it BP, visited parking. I want to emphasize the great teamwork from Center for Independent Living to Tallahassee, to the institution, the warden. This is a teamwork I cannot thank these institutions so much for their cooperation, okay? It's not just classroom, it was a lot of coordination and cooperation. And I would come in, so the second, let me describe the second group. It was improving from the first one, now that I know, right? And again, people opening up, it takes them a while until I, I open up and give them a practical example. And when they start talking about these stories, how to share it at work, at workplace, they become very comfortable. So the, the second group was really, uh, I, I know better. The first group was like, I didn't know, a lot of learning uh, and more stories. The second group, one of the successful stories is this. It's not one of the things we emphasize, yes, defining accommodation, defining uh, access to health services to, or assistance. But the second group was very important. <clears throat> These are students, by the way, are very close to get out of prison. And so our point is, how can we equip them so that they, have their, they, they know their right with disabilities, okay? Uh, some people we talk to, they're like, oh, I don't need this class. I'm already on disabilities, right? And we say, no, no, no. This class teach you and give you the tool, okay? And resources you need, not just only knowing your definition and your right with, you know, and what accommodation you could potentially ask when you go back to the community, okay? So people have assumption that what's a disability is, but it's not what they think it is. It's knowing your disability and how to advocate, self-advocate. I, I talk a lot about self-advocate <clears throat> and this is the beauty of it. What it mean by self-advocate? This is what I was getting, Tony. When I teach course, everything was like, oh, how is this gonna benefit me? And this course is better practical. We are not doing it for lip services. We do what we said, what we taught is what we teach them in a practical way. In another word, if they get out today, they have a portfolio of resume, cover letter, who to have references. Here's the sad news. When I do this, 90% of my students 
never did this, never have resume. They ask me, what's resume? And when they do it, they say, wow, I never thought I would do this. Some of them, when I teach them about social media and what to, to, to be careful, they say, what's social media? Think about it. They've been 40, 50 years incarceration. They don't know, so I have to go slowly. What's iPhone? What's Android? What are the apps? Which, unfortunately, what's Zoom? You have to do this. So one of the examples is in the, my second class was a, uh, last Tuesday. The student got out. And just let you know, before they get out, we set them up with modern technology like we're speaking now with Zoom, with one of the Center for Independent Living, way before they got out. And his experience, he described to me, first of all, he never thought he would do that. They have a Zoom to describe when they get, when he get out, he's already working. Uh, this Center for Independent Living is working on the social security, all the things that he need, all the resources, housing, before he leave prison. That was just incredible. So we said, we don't teach you to just be in a la-la land. We teach you and connect you to a right resource. There are 67 Center for Independent Living in 67 counties, okay? So they can- oh, That's 15 centers for independent living covering 67 counties. Yes, and that is one of many resources. Yeah. Okay, we have a up-to-date resources, what we call felony-friendly companies that we give them with a contact with everything. Here's the beauty. They even asked, is there a center for independent living outside of, of Florida? Because there, some of the students, inmates, are going to be outside of that. For mm -hmm. example, Georgia, North Carolina, Alabama. Guess what we did? We provide them center for independent living contact in there when they get out. So I hope you see the trend. That's awesome. Yeah, that, that's the resources we, 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 are, we are talking about to be practical. This is a person you can contact, okay? Mm -hmm. But the beauty of it, let's talk about self-advocacy, right? Me being with my student for uh, 15 weeks, I would not explain, I would not claim that I know our Department of Correction, okay? Oh, of course not. not that, that my, job, yeah. my, my job is just to teach and, and that's it. But it opened my eyes because I teach them about self-advocacy. Say what you need to say in a non-confrontational way. Here's how I also teach them to be a practical example. I bring people in, for example, people from Center for Independent Living, I bring them in to let them talk about what does Center for Independent Living do? And here's why. Instead of me, I only teach. I don't know much and in and the details of Center for Independent Living. But I bring uh, in one of my course during the day, I bring about three people as a panel. I bring Center for Independent Living uh, person. I bring the person who is in charge of the department of that uh, correctional facility. I bring a ADA coordinator from Tallahassee. Somebody asked me, why would you bring them? Because these students have real questions that are what I call above my pay grade. 
they are, I can't answer them. Mm. But because we want to help these people, Center for Independent Living individual could come and say, here is what we provide and here's what we don't provide. Why? If I say something that is incorrect, I just killed this individual hope because the assumption is, oh, these people will never do anything for us. So I don't want to misspoke. Why do I bring Tallahassee? It is Tallahassee who is supporting this program, okay? They need to see how the program is going. And they have questions that are cannot be answered by Center for Independent Living. So the Tallahassee, who are especially with ADA leaders, American uh, ADA coordinators at the high level, who are the year of the people, they are hearing directly, uh, Tony, you hear American has something called hear from the horse's mouth. <laughs> but here are the people, uh, the students saying, oh, nobody cared for us. And I said, people do care for you. Here are the people I bring to you. You have one shot. What do you want uh, Tallahassee to hear, good and bad? Guess what? They have their question to them. And I'm grateful for Center for Independent Living. I'm grateful for uh, Tallahassee. This is not a joke. We want to help these people. We want to improve their life when they get out of prison. Why? In a typical normal setting, Tony, an inmate or uh, in a person that is, is incarcerated is provided $50 one way. Let's say, for example. When they get out of prison, you give them $50. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, yeah. So when you, are, yeah, when you are provided. <laughs> come back to prison. Yeah. yeah when, you are, when you are provided one way ticket, a bus ticket, $50. Yeah. One way to whatever city you are going, right? That is gone. I always give an example to my student. I like to eat McDonald's a lot. That could be finished in two or three days in McDonald's, okay? Okay, and this person is homeless. So you see the vicious cycle. They come in yeah. back to prison again. They don't have a choice. But what do we give them now? It's not only a $50 bus pass. We give them a resources that when they get out, they already communicated with the right resources, right people to, to help them to integrate into the community as citizens of this country. That is, uh, you probably have, I could relate to that. I came with nothing to this country. Yeah. I was not giving millions of dollars. I was giving resources such as my foster mom who gave me a house and a roof to be staying in. That's the beginning. I was giving education. I was giving opportunity. You see, what we need in life is opportunities, is to give these people opportunities, and then we will be able to help them. So I, I guess there, there, for me, in lies a question. And I think, uh, you know, before I uh, ask it, I think I want to tie what you just said about the, the similarities between you coming to this country not knowing the language, uh, not having a lot of things that might give other people the advantages that you're now mingling with have, and then people getting out of prison, you know, and, you know, they only had, you know, have $50 in the one-way bus ticket. Thankfully, you had like a foster mom and a roof, but the similarities being is like, you know, your future is now in your own hands. You know, you gotta, you know, kind of make it what you can with this opportunity here. 
so that that is why I think like you're so well positioned to to be a teacher for these students. It's just you know you're a great example about how to carve out your own future in your own destiny in a very powerful way. My question, I guess, more or less, then has to do with um, wh- why should people care uh, about inmates coming out of prison and their welfare and their well-being, or even while they're in prison and their welfare and well-being? And I ask this question because. I, I'm not sure people have a whole lot of empathy for for prisoners, for people that are in prison. Um, if I were to describe the social cultural normative attitude um, from the way that I see it about inmates, is like you know they 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 committed a crime, they deserve to be there, they should serve out their time, and and maybe when they get out, I'm not sure how much empathy uh, people have for them and uh, how they fare uh, while out of prison. So. I, I guess my question then would be, you know, assuming my you know, perspective on the, the attitudes of society are correct, what, what do you, what, how can we develop more empathy, you know, perhaps for people who are in prison and uh, for when they get out of prison? Good question, uh, Tony. Why people should care about people in prison in general? I have always think of perspective. There's a saying in America, it take once to know one, right? Because unless I have made some assumption, and let's say I never had with a person that has been incarcerated, right? It's good to hear people perspective, okay? Each of us, we are fortunate to be given opportunity, okay? Why people care is just like any other thing. These people are new again. When I talked to them, I didn't know much about teaching in, uh, uh, in prison. But if I have that attitude, right, to think about, oh, I'm going in already making my mind, these people are murderers, these people are this, these people, like already I'm thinking negative, right? Then I might as well not go there but if i think of them like the human being like me and i they are breathing guess what i went and they treat me with respect and i treat them with respect okay but we we seem to make an assumption when we don't know i never been in prison before and so i am not in best position to talk about good and bad in the prison system, right? The student I am teaching, I'm talking about they've been in prison for 50 plus years, okay? So don't I know that some of them, yes, they're there for uh, murders, but when they talk to me, it's a lot of regrets like most of us. They said, if I would have to do it all over again, I would not have done that. It's remorse. It's realizing that it's more of forgiveness, the story of forgiveness. Forgiveness that come with the cost. It's not easy. And that's where I relate to that terrible thing happened in my life as recently. My sister, for example, was abducted in front of me 32 years ago. And I was recently reunited with her and I brought the person that was abducted, okay? 
And people didn't understand. Why would you do that? This person took your own sister for 32 years. She's older than me, and I followed her. But it took me to come to realization of bitterness will not take us anywhere. Eye for an eye, they said, the world go blind. Mm -hmm. Guess what? When I forgive them, my own sister now brought about seven kids of her own. And they brought in, and I took it as family. It's a, it's a bittersweet. So if I compare that, these people who we are impact them and how to live better, I'm pretty sure when they get out, they have some forgiveness to do for their loved one. They have hurt their son. They, they, it is a bitter pill. If you still have grudges against that, it's going to only escalate and explode. So forgiveness at the individual level, at the community level, come when you have a dialogue, when you have a remorse. So the empathy come as we are human beings. And by the way, I told my student, whether we are free here or in prison, we are one step away from making a stupid mistake and we find ourselves in jail. Mm. Whether it could be, I could not have empathy on them today. It could be an anger management issue. Each day I pray to make a better decision. All of us, there's so much stress with COVID-19, SNAP, relationship, kids, you name it, whatever would take, take you off. I talk about anger management with them. And I talk about how you manage conflict. We manage conflict differently. So none of us, Tony, is not, none of us is not, not free from making a dumb decision. Mm-hmm. The next thing is I am in jail. It's, it's just one degree away from a decision making. And that's why it could be me today, or it could be them today. It's a reality. What guides us is be a good citizen and have each other with respect. Let me give you one example. So when you teach, we have safety pin, like a button we can push, push as if there's a problem. Mm-hmm. So one day, one day I'm teaching and both doors, there was two doors, and both doors were locked. In another word, I am locked in, for example, with the student, there was 10 of them. And I tried to go, there was something that I wanted to go and tell the, one of the officers, right? But both doors were locked. And my students started laughing at me. I said, why are you laughing? They said, welcome to our world, Jacob. <laughs> Now you understand how we are this. So I, I picked their brain. I said, what come to mind? What do you think come to mind now that this is uncharted territory for me and you, we are, you, we are confined together. What do you think? Can you take a guess? What, what am I thinking? What were my fear? The one student said, well, you probably fear for your life. You probably like, what have you got myself into? I picked their brain. That was too far from what I was thinking. You know why I told them? I was actually, I'm glad you said that, but I'm, that's not, I was not fearing for my life. 
because they're human being like me. And I treat them with the respect. What I was afraid, it made me appreciate what is called freedom. Freedom that I can get up and do whatever I want. That was what came to me. I told them, you realize when you get out, you are so free to do whatever you want, dumb decision or good decision. The sense of freedom to just open the door anytime you want. That I'm like, wow. Make me appreciate, man, what it means to move freely, not to be in jail. Trust me. It's the last place that I would advise anybody to be. So you see, our thinking is like fear for our life. But they breathe like me. They share their story like me. Mm. I treat them as human beings. But if we always put the negative thing on top to judge people, then you are dead at the arrival. If I know you are my friend and I put your, if you don't mind, what impressed me with you, my brother, is I met two people who are legally blind <clears throat> and I share about them. I said, I have a good friend of mine, Tony, who's legally blind. And I told him, told them, Tony could do anything. Just because he's legally blind does not stop him. Tony has a PhD, a family, riding his bike, however you want. You should see their eyes. They're like, whoa, Tony has a PhD? And one of my students said, because he's legally blind, guess what, Tony? Me sharing a little bit about your story. He's saying he's going to be starting a nonprofit because I, I inspire him to start a nonprofit to host all of the veterans to make sure they are not homeless when they get out wow. because of my nonprofit. And he wanted me to be the, one of the board of directors. I said, yes. And he, he wanted to get his PhD because you did, Tony. You are legally blind. These are the stories that we create what inspired them. All we need in life is inspirational, is to encourage is to say you can do it. We breathe the same air. We have the same blood. Yes, we are sin, sinful in different nature, but those things could be overcome when you forgive, when you treat people equally, when you treat people with respect. It's all about respect. Once you lose respect, and once you go about judgmental, you judge people. There's a saying in, the Bible, uh, in uh, America, don't judge judge people by their covers. If I'm just going to prison thinking that these people are, are criminal, I might as well not go to prison. I might not go to this job. It's not meant for me. But if I'm going that they are human being like me, <clears throat> they're not perfect like me, they can make mistakes like I always make mistakes. Mm -hmm. I have PTSD when I came here, post-traumatic post disorder. I have my attitude. I'm not perfect. So you see, it's understanding, it's forgiveness. So my brother, sorry, maybe I have not answered your question. You've answered it poetically. <laughs> no, I mean, like I think about what you just said there. If I could summarize it, it would be, um, you know, for people to have empathy, don't be judgmental. I think like if we're not having empathy, perhaps for prisoners, that are in prison or when they get out of prison, underlying that somehow, some way is we're being judgmental. Like they deserve it. 
we know their story, this, that, and the other, and instead have respect. Like we're all humans. Uh, we all are deserving of some kind of dignity and, and forgiveness. You said some powerful things about forgiving. And um, certainly if people are personally connected to their stories, but just in general as a society, uh, America supposedly, like I, I love how you're bringing up uh, a lot of American euphemisms, but it's a land of opportunity. It's a, it's a land of forgiveness and second chances. When I think about people getting out of prison, a big foundational piece of this is to not go back to prison, to, to prevent what's called recidivism. You know, and, and the rates of recidivism are very high. And how can we prevent people from going back to prison? And in prison, like the purpose of prison is not to rehabilitate. It's, it's pretty punitive. And I, I, I think that's an archaic system. I think like we got to, you know, work on helping people while they're in prison become the best version of themselves possible so that when they do get out of prison, that they're set up to succeed by not going back to prison. And that's why I love this, this course is that it's an opportunity for them to look at their story, to retell their story in a way that empowers them, to give them some skills, give them some resources, give them some confidence, and to be able to, when they leave prison, be set up to succeed, whatever that might look like. So no, you answered the question brilliantly. You really have. Um, Go ahead. I, I want to add that when I yeah. talk to some of the uh, students about forgiveness, they have done some terrible thing. And they said, I'm a new man again. I did not understand why I did what I did. Some of them are veterans. They were coming out of Vietnam War. And uh, he said, I just do commit crime. I don't, I don't know why. I just like, but now... This guy said in since 1990s, he's different again. So sometimes uh, that saying, when I said I'm proud to be an American, where I know I'm free, I think we take it for granted. It could be like, if you've been in prison, what I, this is what I emphasize to them. You don't have free, uh, freedom uh, here because you're told when to sleep. And some of the stories, you know, you have a one, a big room with eight or six men, well, it's hard to sleep. So this freedom could be as simple. It's not like in a vague term. It's freedom to just be in your room, to just sleep however you want. You, you don't have eight or six people. That, that's just a peace of mind. So who would underscore the sense of freedom to do what is necessary? I always tell them, America, America has, has everything. What do you want? It's like a buffet. Yeah. And I, I tell men, you know, here in America, it's like a buffet of good and bad. If you want drugs, they are available. If you want women, they're available. If you want cars, they're available. If you want education, if you want to improve your life, if you want to have a better life, like I, I decided 10 years, uh, 20 years ago that I want to go to education. I want to have my PhD. It is what you set your goal to be. If your goal is to rob people and, and, and commit crime, that's the choice you have in America. It will land you in prison. It's not a good choice. So it, I think of America, the beauty of it is it has both good and, and evil. It's up to us to choose 
which way do you want? And life, as you know, is like a, it's like a NASCAR race, right? You, you see 500, uh, NASCAR, 500. Uh, NASCAR is you go 500 times in a circle or in a track, right? Mm -hmm. it's, and then we have a pit stop where you could go and refuel again and come again. Some of these men, I believe, their pit stop was not great to be in prison, but they may come back and refuel again with this tool that we just give them resources, knowing what's their accommodation. And they may be back on the highway of life of good again in America. Yeah, I want to I want to take it almost there here. I love how you're talking about freedom. If, if people have been listening to the disability dojos since July 4th, we've been hitting on this theme of freedom and independence. And what is it? And one of the parts was we have the freedom to make choices. So we can be free to, um, you know, make choices that are good for us and are not good for us. And uh, those will have ultimately consequences either way that can happen. So I really like that thread. Now, when people do get out of prison, there are certain barriers uh, that they're going to face um, and situations that are going to make it more likely that they're going to return to prison. And then there's probably some situations where they can provide opportunities for them to make choices where they won't go back to prison. What are, what are some of the, the, the challenges that you see that are in front of the inmates, the students that you taught for when they're going to get out of prison? Like, what, what are those things that you can say that, like, once they get out of prison, you know, they're, yeah. they're really going to have to figure out, negotiate, and, and be successful at in order to not to return to prison? What are some of those challenges? Thank you. Good question. So in these 15 weeks, the beauty of, of, of knowing the course is going well is bringing in people from resource community like Center for Independent Living and Tallahassee, okay? And I let them ask the question. Like I said, some of the questions are above our head. Uh, the good news is we are able to provide them a lot of resources, great resources. So one of the biggest challenge I'm hearing from them, a lot of the question is around housing. Mm -hmm. A lot, and I think it's a, it's a room that I have realized uh, for the next, if we continue to this, is to put more, uh, a little bit about housing. Because there are certain crimes by nature, let's say a resource organization, let's say cell or other resource organization is willing to provide 99% of the support, you name it, career, uh, guiding, counselor, reference, they can provide that. But that 1% is in housing. For example, this is what I'm hearing from the student. They said they would call and say, you know, I need this, I need this. The challenge they're coming against it is legally, so there are legal uh, ramifications for this, depend on what crime you did. If you have a violent crimes, or you have a crime that has something to deal to, to do with drugs, it is very difficult to get a house. This is what I'm getting. Okay. I'm getting from from, from the word of the of them. So what are the options now? So, okay, you're talking about the chances of going back to prison. If they cannot get a house, they're on the street, they're homeless. And so now the wall is already again, they're they, they already back against the wall and they're most likely to commit a crime, okay? 
and they most likely go back to prison. So it's something that is above my pay grade that I think the system would have to look into that if we are really serious about them not going back, then that, that is what I'm, it's a theme coming 99% of challenge that Jacob, you provide me these resources, they have called. And the only thing that they're having difficulty is housing. Yeah. Now, I'm just talking from the experience. I haven't legally looked at the law, what the law said, but this is the challenge that they're coming back. Uh, yeah, it's real. Um, you know, we, we work really hard to get people with disabilities into affordable and accessible housing. And we have access to private housing vouchers, uh, which can help cover their rent. You know, depending on who's getting us the public housing, whether it's the city or county, one of them has very strict stipulations, you know, and, and, and that is, you know, having priors, you know, a record, um, and especially the type of crime, you can't get the vouchers, like you just can't get them. That's one of the biggest things that we have when we're screening people is like, because like that right away, will deem them ineligible. Yeah, so you imagine coming out of prison, and you don't have uh, the ability to get housed. You know, like you said, you're either going to be homeless and on the street, um, you may then have to rely on people that you know that were part of that social network that uh, may still be in the, you know, living the criminal life um, mm -hmm. and, and or maybe having to go to people that are in the criminal life that can house you in some way. You know, that can be like one of the trade offs for, you know, doing what. Yeah. So it's like, you know, that one thing right there, uh, housing uh, is a major issue that could be a, a underlying mechanism that causes all the recidivism that we see, you know, and then, so we see that, we see, we see that. Uh, and we also see within employment, there's a lot of attention that's been put on to, you know, laws like, or, or, you know, ban the box, I think is, is one of the initiatives. And, and so on many of the applications for employment, they'll ask, you know, or, do you have any you know, past criminal history and those kind of things? And, you know, those kind of questions will then preclude a lot of people from getting employed, especially depending on the nature of the crime. So if people aren't able to get a job. People aren't able to get housed. It just seems to me to be so much easier to, to get back into the life that got them there in the first place. And it's complicated, you know, because at the same time, I can also understand where people are coming from, too in terms of um, the, those areas, you know, they might be resistant to, 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 to house somebody that's had a violent crime, you know, an employer that wants to hire somebody, but, you know, they see, you know, that they, you know, before going, to, you know, what got them into prison was stealing from a company. So it's complicated. It, it's so, really hard. So I want, I want to make a few comments on that. Yeah, go back, for it. Back to one of the earlier questions, Tony, you mentioned, about what is the society view views on, on people getting out of prison. We have identified the problem as you just back it up with evidence that it's a challenge. I was just talking from my experience. This, I would pose a question to us as a society. And this is where the either the lobbies or the legislative might have to think about this law, right? The law is, I'm pretty sure, is made by the people in Tallahassee. And these are the same people that are in the community who are representing us, right? Mm -hmm. As citizens. So it sounds like this is a question. Uh, we Part of my, my curriculum is advocacy uh, in a practical way that uh, we have seen now. If we don't do this, then the red 
of racism is going to be higher without doubt. If we know that it's like Tony giving a soldier a gun and say, go to war without bullets, okay? I'm being practical, honest, and it really derail the progress that some of us, like this curriculum is doing, or other curriculum will do. You cannot give a soldier and say, you are a good soldier. Um, here's the gun, there's no bullet. It is just like, an, uh, you, you, you kill that person. So wh what's the comparison here? We give them 99% of the resources that need it, but they cannot get a house. That is the bullet you need to fight, if that makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. So I think this question is to the legis legislative to think about it on, on what to do uh, and discuss in a way that will be accommodating to this population in particular. That's one thing uh, I wanted to add. And now, uh, yeah. So, so Jacob, going through this experience uh, that you've had, uh, this incredible opportunity, what is it uh, that you've learned about yourself through this experience and delivering this curriculum and uh, connecting with people that you either likewise wouldn't have connected with coming from another country, your insights on freedom, uh, who you are, et cetera. What, what, what is it you learned uh, about yourself through this experience? I learned a lot. I learned that um, one, you know, when we go to education and get our typical PhD, right? <laughs> you have assumption on where you're gonna teach is kind of like defined for you, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I, I taught at a Hopkins, I taught at UF and I taught at Spring Harbor University. That's a typical uh, academia route that we all know, right? Yeah. But I have never thought that the only places I would teach is, is prison, okay? That came out of the left field and that may come with that, don't judge the book by its cover. Mm -hmm. I just tell you the beauty of PhD is you can teach anywhere. So I, I never thought that when we typically graduate, and you would agree, we thought that typical teaching is institution, academia, right? Yeah, but this know it'll take you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This was unique that uh, it's a personal healing too, to 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 share my story again with the people to inspire. So it's kind of a. It's a job, but the passion that to make people life improve is to truly change and transform people through sharing stories, sharing lives together, um, encouragement. I'm not saying uh, I'm the best encourager or my story is the best, but it doesn't really matter. I want to know about you and how we can make life better. So I think uh, I learned a lot about nation uh, in the, uh, our Department of Correction is not the, it's not the best uh, place to, to work alone without a proper communication. So mm -hmm. a lot of adjustment that uh, you, you, I, I didn't realize I have a little bit of patience. And, you know, in America, we seem to, to set on course and say, I know exactly what I'm going to do. When you map your life out, you think you know you will not do well in, in, in this environment. So I go each, each day and it changes. I may have a student drop today, another student show up tomorrow. 
there may be a lockdown that I just have to cope with it. So it's not just teaching, it's teaching you how to work together and how to communicate. And as we could all agree, any kind of system with the government is not an easy system to navigate. It's a lot of bureaucracy, but at the end of the day, we are all working to coordinate for the betterment. This program, the beauty of it, it's not, not just one person supporting it. It's literally all of us. I mean, from the institution of the prison and from Tallahassee, from SIL, it's like all hands on deck. We want this to be successful. So it was not like, oh, it's only one particular party wanted or instructor. No, I give the feedback each day. So it's, it's be flexible, you know. Uh, there are some people who like to be just, I know exactly what to do, but going into this uh, 15 weeks, I go with the mentality like, oh, I go with what life throw at you. Mm-hmm. Like I said, student may not come up and uh, somebody may disagree with my attitude, but it's because that's life. We sometimes map out what we're going to do today, but it may change. Yeah. So being flexible is in this environment of teaching is something that uh, I didn't know. It's, uh, you know, when you taught at UF and I would come to your class, it's just straightforward from this time to this time. Uh, when the lunch will come and all this is not what I have to worry. And when they go to lunch, for example, they will go to lunch and they never come back for two hours. Well, my curriculum is, is derailed. So guess what I have to do? I have to digest and talk with the leaders at the correctional officer and say, okay, we bring the lunch into uh, the classroom. This is something the correctional has haven't done for a while, but they supported me, right? So we have the solution here. When you have a problem, come out with solutions. So patient flexibility and never thought that I would make an impact in a prison system. Wow. I love it. You know, what I hear when you're saying that is, is uh, you never thought you would be in the situation that you're in. You know, we, we, we make plans, God laughs, you know, and, and takes us into places that, you know, we, we never thought we would be, but it's where we're meant to be. I, I can see how everything that has happened in your life has prepared you to be ready for this moment and, and to have met the moment and to overcome any of the challenges that you have. Also, the importance of uh, a team. You know, yeah, yes, you were, you know, whether it was Jane Johnson at, at Vassal or um, the people that you were working with at the specific prisons or, you know, the Florida Department of Corrections folks in Tallahassee, it required everybody at some point in this game to really be the best version of themselves, to give it the support that it needed. Um, the, the, you know, it, it took a, a village, so to speak, and to being able to do it. But I got to tell you, my friend. You're a very key part of that orchestra of people to make this symphony go and to work and you know, to be on the other side of this. It literally wrapped yesterday, July 14th was your last class. Um, you did, did some phenomenal work. So we're at the very beginnings of debriefing on all that was learned on this and so appreciate you coming in and sharing just a little bit. I mean, I know you've learned so much more than what you even shared in this, and and we'll have to have you back on for more as we do some more debriefing uh, about this experience that you had working with some of the most vulnerable uh, in our society and probably most marginalized in many ways for many reasons of which you just articulated there. I couldn't think of a better person to do the role that you were tasked to doing, man. My pleasure. My pleasure. It's such an honor to work with everyone from 
Lindsay who designed an incredible. That's right. Thank you for mentioning her. Incredible uh, curriculum, you know. Yeah, with- Lindsay Tell. She was on. Yeah, she's uh, yeah was on this podcast as well. Phenomenal yeah. curriculum she developed. Oh yes, and uh, I I couldn't be working for a better uh, organization yeah. where people uh, from instruction design perspective, Lindsay, to sell to the prison officers and warden to Tallahassee who are making a policymaker. Everybody is on deck on this. That, that's the beauty. You, we need each other. Everybody's very supportive. And I'm very, very grateful. It couldn't be any better uh, group that I would work for. Attitude, flexibility, being considerate. It takes um, ERA, employment readiness, advancement. It's a teamwork. It's a team effort. There's no one person who can... Um, said, I did it. Uh, I wouldn't be able to teach anything if there was no well-designed and there's no vision yeah. from Tallahassee to, to your office, to just, just the all-around all, all teamwork. And uh, uh, at any time as we progress, I hope this uh, ERA potentially can be expanded and, and I'm interested to, to, to share the knowledge, not only as a, as a teacher, but I have proposed some ideas to Tallahassee that uh, I would be, I'm a first instructor, so I would like to, if we do continue with this ERA program, to do what we call the train the trainer model approach, what you and I are doing here. What makes this successful is me being vulnerable to them. They see the authenticity. But if there's another faculty that is holding back, I'm not trying to say this then, uh, it would be difficult. So I would like to train at least three, two days or three days of training all of the faculty to, 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 to learn from what I have learned in the last 15 weeks. And then they can go and take it from there and be able to train each other because the success of, successful of this curriculum is connecting to people, is be, be people person, be genuine be vulnerable to them, share authentically with them, say what you mean and do what you mean. Because people are watching. If you just lip services, I'm gonna connect you with this resource and you don't do it, you might not as well. But when we tell them we will connect you with SIL, Uh this facility, we give them the contact name, they can call, it's real. That's right. When we said they are felony friendly environment, this is their contact, it's real. Because let's be honest, the institution is the environment is, is, is not conducive for, for, for vulnerable for many reasons, right? Sure. So they, they are taught that, you know, they, they cannot know what is truth and what it's not. Maybe somebody, one of the first people said, I'm going to do this and they never do it. So when I came in, they tell, oh, you talk about Tallahassee, you talk about, about the facility, oh, they're always not correct they're not gonna uh, they don't tell us the truth and then I say stop what I'm gonna tell you is gonna change and guess what sure enough the facility come in and talk to them and here's the beauty here's the beauty the people at that cell and the people at Tallahassee they not only be on the side of policy making they are part of the system let me give you an example there are two gentlemen 
who came from Tallahassee. They were able to share what it meant for them when they got into trouble. They were in jail. Dad, tell me about it. They're like, oh my goodness, you are our coordinator now. You work in Tallahassee for our voice. But wait a minute, you are in prison? It's the choices that we make. They're like, wow, if you were like this, I have a chance now to get out and be a coordinator and be a advocate on that. So I'm telling you about the, sharing this story. These Tallahassee people who are making decisions are not just only come to give support. They share their testimony to inspire them. One of them was there for nine years in the same correctional. So he knows them. But they're like, look at me now. I am at the legislative side. So these people understand. It's not just them at Tallahassee and AC and making decisions without understanding. They understand what it means to be in prison. They understand what it means to be officer there. And they're part of the larger group. They're leaders, but they're also vulnerable. So when they share, they're like, wow, everybody cry. They're the bosses. So when I say ERA, it is a serious curriculum that everybody wanted to be successful. We are trying real hard on both across the aisle from Tallahassee to sell to the prison correctional, to Department of Correctional, to the felony friendly companies. We are literally, genuinely, honestly trying to help one another. There's no fail. Because what is difficult sometimes, if you have opposition, try to fail you. There's nobody, we are one team here. It's not about us against them. It is everybody entangled, one, each of us to be successful. Thank you, Jacob. Unity, and it does take so many different moving pieces to make that unity happen. And we all benefit, you know, and through all these efforts, really what the, the inmates are positioned to benefit from this, to have another opportunity, to have hope, to have inspiration, things that they've never had before. I've heard that was a comment from some of the student inmates that participated in this program is that they, for the first time ever, were having hope, ideas that they could be successful, opportunities like that. That's priceless. And society does benefit if they can become contributing members of society. You know, it's just the right thing to do humanitarian wise. And if that doesn't strike a chord with people, it just makes economic sense. We pay for it as taxpayers when people go back to prison. It costs way more to institutionalize people into our prisons than it does to keep them out of prison. And, and so it just makes sense primarily for humanitarian reasons, but if that doesn't resonate with people, it hits us in the pocketbooks when we uh, so, you know, recidivism happens. So, so Tony, just to let you know how excited they are, for 48 years, some people don't know how to turn on a computer. Uh -huh. So what was so cool is we're typing the story on the computer. Some people become guru in a literally in a matter of hours. Yeah. And of course, I'm not going to teach them all that, but it's just like they never have that. Uh, so the excitement is so much. They're appreciative of little things, the new technology they are learning. So that's that's true. Uh, I want to add something important you mentioned about it hit our pocket. On average, talking to them, and these numbers subject to verification, just to give you a perspective, what does that mean, come out of our pocket, okay? It costs 
on average, one inmate, let's say, I'm not a math person, let's say $110 uh, a day. Yeah. So I'm not a math, make a math, mathematician a calculation here. Let's say on average, there is over 100,000 inmates. How much is that a day? Yeah, no, it costs hundreds of thousands to institutionalize one inmate. So just, just to give yeah. that perspective, it is true. It's it's costly. It's a just it's just let, the, let let yeah, let the numbers speak yeah. for itself. So it's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, because like again, like I, I'd like to think people are in it for for the humanitarian reasons, the the heart, just the right thing to do morally, ethically. And there are a lot of people out there that that does strike a chord. But again, you know, not everybody has you know empathy for this population, but they might make sense to them on an economic level, and it just does. It, it's a much cheaper to keep people into our society than to institutionalize them, especially if they become uh, employed and are becoming tax donors instead of having to you know be people that are institutionalized with taxpayer money, it just makes more sense economically too. So trying to trying to connect with people in terms of logic, whether it's at the heart, whether it's in the pocketbooks or both, it just makes more sense. Jacob, thank you so much for, for taking the time. I mean, we could go on for hours. You've learned so much from this experience and, and believe me, we're gonna be circling back and having you on and, and talking about this and, and so much more. You're just a, a wealth of wisdom, my friend. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you all. And thank you always for welcoming me to Center for Independent Living podcast. And to the viewers, enjoy. Uh, let me know if there are questions. Read directly to and uh, be able to get my contact. Thank you so yeah, much. We'll have to do a Q&A with Jacob, Dr. Jacob Atem. All right, Jacob, thank you so much for, for all your efforts. And uh, God willing um, that these efforts will allow everyone, including those that are incarcerated, whether they're in prison or out of prison, thank to learn you. to take their lives onward and upward. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Independent Life Podcast, brought to you by the Center for Independent Living of North Central Florida. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe. And if you know anyone who might benefit from listening, share this podcast and invite them to subscribe too. For questions, suggestions, or if you have a story you'd like to share, please email us at cilncf.org at gmail.com or call us at 352-378-7474. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, support, advocate, and empower each other to live the independent life.